Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, the pancreas is an important organ of the digestive system. It's often referred to as the hidden organ because it's located deep within the abdomen, behind the stomach, and in front of the spine. It's an important organ for digestion and the metabolism of glucose. Now, the word cancer is used to describe a group of diseases where cells are abnormal. They grow to control and can spread. And pancreatic cancer occurs when abnormal cells grow to control in the tissues of the pancreas and form a tumor. Pancreatic cancer usually doesn't have symptoms, or if it does, they're so vague that they're often overlooked or associated with another potential cause. As a result, approximately 50% of pancreatic cancers won't be identified until they're already metastasized, which means they spread to other parts of the body, which reduces the survival chances for patients. Now, currently, there's no effective screening to identify pancreatic cancer. The pancreatic cancer survival rate is one of the lowest for common cancers, so individuals have to learn to listen to their bodies and be their own advocates. So this week marks World Pancreatic Cancer Day. So we're gonna chat with Connie Walsh, who's a nurse and pancreatic cancer survivor as she shares her personal experience with pancreatic cancer. We'll finish up with Stephanie Condon-Oldriev, founder and director of Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society, who will shed light on the disease and the efforts that are being made by researchers and charities to reduce its devastating impact on patients and families. But first, let's hear from Dr. Ravi Ramjasinghe, a medical oncologist who leads research in the area of pancreatic cancer. He joined me from Halifax to tell us more about the disease. Hi, Dr. Ramjasinghe. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, you had a busy day today, but I appreciate you coming home and, and joining us to sh- talk about this important topic, which is something that you deal with all the time. But maybe before we get into today's topic of pancreatic cancer, tell me a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a medical oncologist uh, here in Halifax. Uh, I trained originally in Toronto, uh, where I did my MD, and I did a PhD in cancer research before going down this route. Uh, then I went to Queens and did my training in internal medicine and medical oncology there. And actually, I did a two-year clinical trials methodology fellowship at CTG, which is the Canadian Clinical Trials Group, uh, before going on to Halifax. So uh, that's my background. And now I, I pretty much see a lot of pancreas, liver, gallbladder cancers, and breast cancer too, to a certain extent. Uh, I also am the medical director for our, our Halifax, well, actually Nova Scotia Clinical Trials Unit and uh, the medical director of research here for medical oncology, among other hats. Wow, wow. So you're the right person to talk to about this topic. You have such a breadth of experience from both the research side and the practice side of things. So, you know, today we're going to talk about something you're extremely familiar with, like you said, pancreatic cancer. But maybe you could start off with some, almost some anatomy of the pancreas and what its role is in the body and where it's located. Well, absolutely. So um, the pancreas really, if you think about it, it's just just below the stomach, kind of free floating in the abdomen. Uh, It's an organ. Uh, Primarily, it has two purposes, one to kind of help maintain our blood sugars in our body, and it also helps with digestion. Um, And those are kind of the two main things that it does in our body right now. One of the challenges I've always heard about diagnosing it is that it's somewhat buried in there. So it's it's more central than a lot of different organs, and it's not very big, is it? No, no, it's a not a huge organ. And it, as I mentioned, it's free-floating too. So uh, it kind of moves around and wiggles a little bit. When you see the CT scans, it's kind of hazy uh, because it's just kind of floating there in space. It's tethered on one side uh, close to where the uh, bile ducts are and the outlet for the stomach is as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a relatively 
rare form of cancer in some ways, but it's extremely deadly. I looked at some stats and it said it's projected about 6,900 Canadians will be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and about 5,700 are going to die of it in 2022. Why is the survival rate so low? And, you know, has that changed over time? First, um, I mean, it's so low because the symptoms of it are very nonspecific. Um, it, it, you could have some generalized abdominal pain, some constipation, um, some weight loss. These are things that many earth syndromes, many are medical conditions can present that way. And so a lot of times it's just harder to pick up and diagnose. Uh, and then, of course, when you look at treatment, there's not a lot of huge treatments out there. And, and so when you get diagnosed, a lot of times it's diagnosed later, and then you don't have a lot of treatment options. So it, it does lead to why we don't have the best outcomes uh, for this disease. We are seeing some improvements, though, um, over time, but we're not talking about leaps and bounds that we're seeing in other cancers. So we're talking about marginal like one, two, three, four, five percent improvements, which is it's good in one respect we're seeing improvements, but it's not what we really want to see when we talk about pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you said sort of nondescript symptoms as the disease progresses and gets to the stage where it starts setting off some alarm bells. What are the things that people are presenting with when they come to you in your clinic? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you think about the pancreas, there's kind of a head and a tail and then the middle is the body. Uh, the head is very much tethered around the gallbladder and the bile ducts and the outlet for the stomach. So a lot of times when you present with a cancer there, it starts to obstruct the bile ducts. Mm. And a lot of times these patients will present with jaundice or elements affecting their liver or having problems with digestion. They have gastric outlet obstruction. Uh, so it doesn't take a huge amount, a uh, large tumor to cause some issues. If the masses in the body or tail of the pancreas, that's where it's more free floating. And so typically those masses have to become much larger in size, start pressing on things in the abdomen, causing pain or weight loss. And usually when it grows to that size, it's probably also spread as well, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, certain people are able to have different tests and different treatments for it. But w- let's start with testing. What are, what tests are available for pancreatic cancer? Well, really, the, the one that we use for diagnosis is just a simple CAT scan. And there's a protocol, it's called the pancreas protocols, which is just based on the contrast and being able to look at the lesion. But really just a simple test, it's like a CT scan. You don't really need MRIs. Um, The surgeons may want that for like surgical planning purposes, but for diagnosis, really just a CAT scan. Uh, Sometimes patients get ultrasounds uh, as their initial test, but uh, there's a decent rate of false positives and false negatives with that, where you may think there's nothing there, but it's missed on the ultrasound and it's really picked up on the CAT scan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so usually we say, don't just start, stop at an ultrasound, kind of move on and get that CAT scan. Mm-hmm. Just to just to be sure, just in case, you know, because said yeah. it, it has so many different varied conditions or, or, or symptoms. So that's testing. People may get diagnosed with it. If they are diagnosed for it, what are the treatments that are given to them? Uh, so I typically break it down to surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and others. Um, surgery is the mainstay of potentially curing someone. Uh, it's really the only thing that will cure someone. So going in and cutting it out. Radiation, chemotherapy, they're kind of bridging to get them the surgery as long as they haven't spread to other parts of the body. Once it's spread to the other parts of the body, 
everything is more to try to slow it down. But really, the outcome is down the road, the cancer will get you. So it's trying to buy as much time as possible with the best quality of life as possible once it has spread to other organs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess that's where research is so important for early diagnosis, for effective treatments. Yeah. And earlier this year, it was announced that the Atlantic provinces were partnering to create an Atlantic Clinical Trials Network. Can you tell us a bit about your role with this network and um, some of the research that you're doing in pancreatic cancer? Yeah, so right now it's kind of in the infancy. Um, they're working and designing, but the idea is when a clinical when a unit is approached for a clinical trial, uh, there's a lot of contracts going through ethics boards. There's a lot of paperwork, and it does take time. The average time is about eight months from when you get approached for a clinical trial to getting one activated on average. It can be longer than that as well. Um, and so the idea is to streamline things, to make it quicker, to open trials. But also then, if you don't have a trials unit in your center, you can utilize a trials unit in other centers. So it become a much broader population. So as opposed to having this a Nova Scotia, a New Brunswick, a New Philander PI, you have that whole catchment area, which can all be accessible for these clinical trials. So that's the idea behind it. It's very much in the infancy, so they're kind of working on the process. So I think it's going to take time for it to build it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, I'm the medical director of our Nova Scotia Oncology Clinical Trials Unit. And so uh, this is something I've just taken on over the last eight weeks. Um, but the idea is we're trying to build things for Nova Scotia. We'll likely be part of this whole uh, Atlantic Trials Unit uh, as it moves forward as well. Uh, so the second part, when we talk about research, I think one of the biggest things that's coming out for pancreatic cancer is this thing called precision medicine. Uh, taking a piece of the cancer, sequencing it, trying to find mutations and looking for alternative treatments based on the genetics of that tumor. It's becoming more of a standard here in the United States, but in Canada right now, it's really only through research programs. But we're beginning to realize how important this is to tailor treatments towards patients. And there's actually outcome data that shows that if you can tailor a treatment to a patient, they actually do much better than if you just give standard chemotherapy alone. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's so nice to know that there's people like yourselves that are dedicating yourselves to finding these, being very creative in how you do it and and using the cutting edge. And it's right here at home, which is great. Now, I mean, Having you on the show and having an expert like yourself and people listening, what it, what final thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with as they sort of close off our interview here today? You know, there's hope. Uh, that's the one thing. Um, I think that every year I see new things coming on the horizon. There's new pipelines and new things coming out. And so uh, I think one of the biggest things, if you are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, you definitely have to have a discussion with your oncologist. Uh, Historically, there was a lot of patients with pancreatic cancer who never actually saw a medical oncologist um, and were just kind of sent home. Part of it's from the nihilism and part of it was there wasn't that many treatment options. And so what I like to stress uh, to the viewership is that we want to see these patients so we can have that discussion. Whether you decide to go on a treatment or not, that's totally up to you. But you need to have the information to make an informed decision to decide where you want to go. Uh, And so that's one of the biggest things I want uh, everyone to hear about. Mm-hmm. And, and the point of this show is health literacy. People tune in every week for different topics. Some of them are topics like this that are critically important. So I really appreciate you sharing your, your knowledge, your advice, and, and your time for joining us today. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Anytime. 
Well, that was Dr. Ravi Ramjasing, a medical oncologist and pancreatic cancer specialist. When we come back, we'll chat with Connie Walsh, nurse and pancreatic cancer survivor, as she shares her personal experience with pancreatic cancer. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Connie Walsh, nurse and pancreatic cancer survivor, as she shares her personal experience with surviving pancreatic cancer. Let's check it out. Hi, Connie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming here today. We're talking about an important topic and one that has affected you personally, but you work in the health field, correct? Yes, I do. I'm a registered nurse. I work at St. Clair's. Right on. And how long have you been a nurse for? I've been a nurse for 31 years. Wow. So you've seen a thing or two when it comes to the health field, that's, that's for sure. More than a thing I'd have to say. Yeah, exactly. Well, you have uh, also not only seen it firsthand through work, but you've experienced it firsthand. You were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and you're a survivor. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, when were you first diagnosed with it? Uh, I was diagnosed in 2013. I had um, probably about 48 hours of just feeling full. I just felt like I had eaten a seven course meal and I just had a yogurt. So that went on for about two days, just felt everything was right up to the back of my throat. Um, didn't really know what it was, but I knew it wasn't normal for me. So I went to the emergency room, which is every nurse's worst nightmare to be in your own emergency room. And the doctor there said, you know, we'll do a bedside ultrasound and see I said, you know, maybe it's gas. I said, and it could be, but it's not something that I normally have. So for 48 hours, I would have thought it would have went away. So he did a bedside ultrasound. He said, you know, maybe it is just gas. He said, but we'll run some bloods. So I came back with pancreatitis. So then, of course, I was asked, do you drink? I said, I wish I drank enough. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't. I have three children. Um, so I was admitted with pancreatitis, and I spent a couple of weeks in the hospital. And uh, there was a blockage in my bile duct. Um, I'd had three CT scans, two MRIs, nine ERCPs without diagnosis. My tumor marker was low, um, so they didn't think it was pancreatic cancer. So doctor, my surgeon, Dr. Felix, sent me to Halifax for an endoscopic ultrasound. When I got there, they decided that I didn't look sick enough to have an endoscopic ultrasound. They said that I had had the blockage in my bile duct and that they were much better at solving this problem than they were here in Newfoundland. So they did a, another ERCP, put a stent in. I think I had a total of three stents. I spent a month in Halifax. Um, when I was discharged, I came home and my stents blocked off. I ended up back in hospital. In the end, I think I was about almost three and a half months, uh, really sick, really jaundiced, lost a lot of weight. And then finally, I said to my surgeon, you have to cut me open. I said, that's it. Just do a laparotomy, open me up and see what you find. And he said, no, he said, we just can't do that. And I said, well, you have to, I'm 45. I have three children. Clearly I'm dying. And he said, no, no, you're not dying. He said, kind of your tumor marker was low. And I said, well, I feel like I'm dying. I said, so can you do a surgery? So he did set me up with a Whipple surgeon. He said, if we're going to do a surgery and look at your pancreas, it would have to be a Whipple. So I had a Whipple um, in August of 2013 and pathology is what prove my diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Wow. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's a resounding takeaway is this is so difficult to diagnose. I mean, anatomically, it's hidden deep inside of our abdominal cavity. It's tough to get at. It's tough to see. So they actually went inside to see what was going on. And then when they were in there, they discovered that you had cancer. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. It was only with the Whipple that I would have been diagnosed. Wow. Wow. So, okay. So you had a lot of challenges in getting a formal diagnosis, but obviously you're very well educated in this. You would be somebody who understands all the different steps somebody would need to go through with this diagnosis. But how important was it for you to be an advocate for yourself? You know, being a nurse, nurses are typically the worst patients and we are, but it's because we know and we will challenge and ask questions. And I really went in saying to everybody, I'm going to be the nice nurse. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to be that terrible nurse patient. But after a couple of months, I thought, no, I'm going to die if I stay being that nice nurse because that nice nurse isn't allowed to ask questions or demand things. Mm -hmm. So then around three months in, I was like, no, this has to change now. And I said to my surgeon, you need to line up every specialist, every doctor I need to see. We need to take this further and, you know, find what's happening here. Yeah, that's yeah, that makes perfect sense. Getting those second opinions, ask for that extra help when you when you feel like there's something seriously wrong. That's obviously saved your life. I think they would have let me go longer and longer. And I don't think my doctor wanted me to have pancreatic cancer. I kept saying, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. I was like, but it is something, mm -hmm. you know. So I I truly believe that if I hadn't, I would have had a much different outcome. Yeah, and yeah. I think patients need to realize that that they have to stand up for themselves if they truly believe that they're in danger. Mm -hmm. And in like somebody like yourself with the information behind them to, to have an educated, you know, voice on that is really important. Um, so you had the Whipple surgery, um, but did you go undergo any other treatments and, you know, did they continue yes. to this day? Yep. I, I had the Whipple in August and then I started chemo about six weeks later and I did uh, six months of chemotherapy. Wow. Um, and uh, since then I've been fine. I have to say, I have little issues every year, you know, that, that gives me a little reality slap to say, is, you know, don't forget you had cancer. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't have those, I, I'm doing great. Oh, that's, that's so nice to hear. That's such a, that's a rare outcome for pancreatic cancer, but such a fantastic one, uh, especially because you can get back to helping other people now. It's such a valuable mm -hmm. role you play in the community and in health. So I guess, uh, you know, where you've had such a, in-depth experience with it, you know, you know, pancreatic cancer firsthand on so many different levels. What, what thoughts would you like to leave listeners with when it comes to this topic? I think early detection is everything. It is survivable. If you get it early enough, I was stage two B. Um, and, and I think I probably, if I had been diagnosed two months earlier when I went to Halifax, maybe I could have been a, a one B, mm -hmm. but, um, and you just have to believe in yourself and know that when you know there's something wrong, you have to fight for it and you have to push. And that's the only way you can get a good outcome. And with the emergency rooms these days, it's so, you know, I really pity people who go in with something so indiscreet as bloating or feeling full or something that they're going to be put in the back burner because it's not, you're not critically ill. But it is so important to, to stay the course and get your diagnosis. Yeah. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us today. It's a very personal one. I'm sure it's not easy to reflect on, but it's really valuable for everybody to listen. So thank you so much for joining me today, Connie. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you to Connie Walsh, nurse and pancreatic cancer survivor, for sharing her personal experience with pancreatic cancer. When we come back, we'll chat with Stephanie Condren Oldria, founder and director of Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society will shed light on the disease and the efforts being made by researchers and charities to reduce its devastating impact on patients and their families. We'll be right back after the break.
Welcome back. We're here with Stephanie Condrinoldria, founder and director of Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society, who's shedding light on the disease and the efforts that are being made by researchers and charities to reduce its devastating impact on patients and their families. Let's check it out. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming. I've been following your organization for a number of years now. Every year we do an episode on pancreatic cancer as I lost my father to it. I believe you have a personal connection to pancreatic cancer as well. But before we sort of get into the nitty gritty of it all, can you tell me a little bit about your organization, Craig's Cause? Yeah, so uh, Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society was formed informally um, in 2006. My dad, Craig, and the Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society was diagnosed um, at the end of July with pancreatic cancer. And at the end of September, so about eight weeks later, he passed away from his cancer. And uh, within that eight very short weeks, we had a lot of conversations and uh, we found ourselves going um, south of the border. So we were going to John Hopkins, MD Anderson, Sloan Kettering, um, looking for a lot of answers to our questions, um, different treatment options that were available. We also didn't, we couldn't find any support. So we were using, excuse me, PanCan. And a PanCan was providing a lot of the emotional support and, and patient resources that we were lacking here in Canada. So we knew in a very short period of time that we didn't have awareness in Canada for pancreatic cancer. You know, there wasn't a lot of information, Canadian information about treatment and, and care. Um, and also we were certainly lacking in the support. And uh, so we knew that we wanted to do something, um, you know, and dad wanted to support research. Um, so uh, after he lost his, you know, after he died from pancreatic cancer, we knew that we wanted 100% of his memorial donations to go to research. Um, so we looked into how to put 100% of the funds into researchers' hands. And a friend of mine created a, a web site or with one page and it just said Craig's cause and she thought I should write something about memorial donations and where they would go so that people could go on there and then with the world wide web people started searching pancreatic cancer and they were stumbling stumbling upon our memorial page and they were asking for help mm -hmm. Canadians were so my same friend I say this is you know this is the one that caused all this to happen she uh that we'll write some more pages in layman terms about what you learned about your journey with pancreatic cancer. So I put together a few more pages with her encouragement. And, um, you know, 16 years later, uh, we've raised millions of dollars and we have four pillars uh, for our organization. We got our nonprofit registered number and then we got our charitable status. We have events in every province and, uh, certainly a, a wealth of information for patients. So it, you know, we had one little idea and because of the World Wide Web and people Googling, um, it turned into a, to an international organization. Yeah, that's very, that's amazing that you guys have been able to do what you've done and, and grown it to such a big level, all because of, you know, just wanting to make a difference and wanting to see those funds go where they should, which is to trying to find a cure. Before we get into the work of your organization, can you share a bit about your personal experience with pancreatic cancer, dealing with the sort of unexpected diagnosis and how quickly it uh, impacted your family and, your, of course, your father? Yeah, so, um, you know, the only connection I had to pancreatic cancer when dad was diagnosed was that I think within that year that he was diagnosed, Michael Landon had been diagnosed. 
And Michael Landon, I remember him on the Johnny Carson show. And he land, he lasted three months. And I remember, um, you know, when dad first got sick, you know, or started showing the symptoms of pancreatic cancer, you know, he had acid reflux and the doctor gave him Zantac and, you know, and then he had a little bit of an upset stomach, you know, which was strange because he was athletic, very fit, ate well. And, uh, you know, so he went to his doctor and the, and the doctor said not to worry about it. And then he got a little yellow and dad, had, we live five houses apart. The only, I'm an only child. Dad's an only child. We're a very small family. He walked up the street and said, do I look yellow? And I said, oh, yes, you look very yellow. And he says, yeah, he says, I think I'm going to go back to the doctor. So already he's starting to display many of the signs and symptoms of pancreatic cancer. His stool is white when he became jaundiced. His urine was dark. We still knew nothing about pancreatic cancer, um, depending on our general practitioner, who I know now general practitioners will only see maybe three or four cases in, within their careers. Um, the general practitioner uh, sent dad to have an hepatitis test because he had just come back from traveling through Alaska. And uh, so he was in different communities where the water treatment centers didn't exist. So they thought maybe he picked up hepatitis. The test came back negative. Now he's itchy. And the physician said, oh, the labs made a mistake. There's nothing else you can have. Even though I know now today, he had many of the symptoms. And uh, so he went back for another test. It got negative. He had another negative test. At this point, dad was Googling. And uh, he said, I think I have pancreatic cancer. So he actually bypassed a lot. And he went to a private MRI clinic here. And a Wednesday morning uh, was his, his MRI. And Thursday morning, he was in the office being told he had pancreatic cancer. So it was a very short period of time and the symptoms that he was starting to display. We were devastated. You know, I still get emotional about it today, especially when I, you know, go back and, and think of the whole journey because it was just eight weeks. And I remember he was a lucky one and he was allowed, he was, he was a candidate for the Whipple procedure. And uh, the day he was supposed to have his Whipple, it was postponed. It was on a Saturday and uh, they sent him home and it was postponed until the Sunday. And he had um, an IV still in his, like not an, uh, just like the, the pick there in his arm. And we went cycling and he kicked my butt on the bike. Like I couldn't even keep up to him. He was 63. And uh, we got home and he said, I can't believe I'm this sick, but yet feel so good. Because at this point he had also had a stent put in to relieve the jaundice until the surgery date. And he said, how can I be this sick, but yet feel so good? And um, so he went in and had his surgery early September. And at some point, they don't know if it was from the stent, he picked up an infection and uh, the sutures and everything weren't, weren't able to hold the tissue. So yeah, it just, it just didn't, it just didn't work out. He, uh, he passed away on the 29th of, of, September. So we had a lot of conversations over that period of time. You know, I remember saying, and this has always stuck to me, besides how can I be so sick, but yet feel so good. The other thing he had said to me in the hospital, I had said, you know, frustrated. I said, I can't believe we're in this mess because these surgeries weren't working. And I knew things were getting very, very serious, very quick. And he said, I can't believe I'm, 
I can't believe I have cancer. So really many patients with pancreatic cancer and, and over the 16 years we've been running, you know, that's often the theme that patients are being diagnosed with this beast of a cancer and really they don't have a lot of time. They're either being told they're going to have a, you know, a life-changing surgery or that, you know, to go home and get their affairs in order, you know? So, you know, with other cancers, you have more time to, to look at different treatments you know, have time to digest your news, but we know with pancreatic cancer, speed matters. It's what a patient once said to me, speed matters. So you really have to make some massive, massive decisions in such a short period of time. And you really don't even have time to digest that cancer diagnosis. That's Stephanie condon Oldria, founder and director of Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Stephanie Condrinoldria, founder and director of Craig's Cause Pancreatic Cancer Society, who's shedding light in the disease and the efforts that are being made by researchers and charities to reduce its devastating impact on patients and their families. Let's check it out. You guys have 100% of the revenue goes towards research. And why is it so important that the, the money goes towards research, first and foremost? Well, so it goes to our four pillars. So we have public awareness, patient support, healthcare, education, and research. Research, you know, I, I can't even say now, like I've been this for 16 years, that one is more important to the other now because it's also connected. Mm -hmm. We know that we have to have public awareness in order to raise funds for research. We know that, you know, we need the research to facilitate you know, uh, the interest in the research world, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, when we were offering um, pancreatic cancer research awards, people weren't applying for them. There just wasn't the interest in the research world. So, you know, you certainly need to provide the funding in this research world to interest the researchers in the work that they want to do. They have to know that there's some stability in their work that they're doing. It, you know, pancreatic cancer for a long time, and, and even now today, we're still having those discussions. It's a cancer that many researchers don't get involved in because it's such a hard cancer to treat. Mm -hmm. There really hasn't been any changes in the morbidity, morbidity rate since 1998. You know, when you look at the treatment options available, there is a few new treatment options available. But once again, you know, there's been research that has been made for a drug with Onavide. It came out of clinical trials. It was uh, Health Canada approved. The PCPA turned it down. So that's you know the 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 Pan Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance. They you know are that regulatory negotiating body for all Canadians, and they have 13 representatives. And and uh, Onavide was the first second line treatment for pancreatic cancer, and uh, unfortunately it was turned down. Um, and, and wasn't funded. So the only second line treatment available was turned down at, at a very minimal cost. The manufacturer is offering it to them at cost and they still didn't take that drug at cost. So, you know, that in itself can often be hard on clinical trials and, and researchers work because not only are, is pancreatic cancer a hard cancer to fight, but on top of that, you know, when new drugs are um, approved, we're looking at really a small population of patients. You know, you're looking at about 6,700, 6,900 pancreatic cancer patients in 2022. And then with other cancers like breast cancer, you're looking at, you know, over 50,000 
patients. So you have 50,000 people saying, look at me, we want this new treatment, as opposed to a very small population. So this show's all about health literacy. And some of the things you've been saying are that, you know, even physicians may not know to recognize it because it's so uncommon. Individuals may have to look up their own symptoms and even then there's confusion around it all. Um, so obviously understanding the disease is critically important from both the healthcare practitioner side, but also the person that's suffering from cancer. How has health literacy sort of been an important part of your organization? Oh, it's huge. You know, we sit on, um, we have two of our staff that sit on the World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition. And the World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition is all about messaging. So we're trying the World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition and, and us using, you know, we have 100 organizations using similar information about symptoms of pancreatic cancer and risks of pancreatic cancer. So that messaging is the same globally in, in every language you can imagine. So we're really trying to get the public to understand that if you lose 20 pounds in a month and you're not trying, there's a problem. If you have late set on diet, late onset diabetes, there's there may be a problem. You need to investigate that. If you're yellow, you need to investigate that. And, and most importantly, to know your body and be an advocate, especially in today's, you know, in the world that we are today, COVID has impacted a lot of diagnostic pathways and getting a timely diagnosis in, in any cancer or any disease. And then the other part of our work is healthcare education. So we um, created um, the first national pancreas conference in Canada. We had one last year and had over 200 healthcare professionals from around Canada. Wow. We created um, North America's first e-learning module. So pancreas, or so physicians can take it in, in their home, they can take it in their office, and they can go through um, two case studies and learn about the risks and the symptoms and, and still get credits towards their licensing. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, it, it really is a 50-50. You really have to educate the public so they can advocate for themselves, but you really also have to ed educate um, the healthcare community, you know, where patients are first presenting, whether it's in the ER, to a pharmacist, you know, your community pharmacists are is such amazing support systems, especially if you can't get into see your GP. No, that's right. And that, that makes sense. And so if somebody's looking to get this, if I'm a physician that was listening to this or a healthcare provider or a pharmacist, uh, or somebody who's dealing with pancreatic cancer or a family member of somebody dealing with it, are there resources that you guys have available that people can go to, to find out more information? Yeah, absolutely. So we have our website, craigscause.ca. And on that, we have a lot of um, printable information for the patients and caregivers who have started their journey with pancreatic cancer. And we also have videos. So, you know, some of the reading can get heavy. Um, you know, I know for patients, many times they, to even focus on, on a piece of writing or to read it and absorb what it's telling you is hard. So um, every piece of information we have on a website, we have videos to support it. And then we also have a lot of patient support programs, whether it's financial grants, a support group once a month. We have patient support group now that actually is just starting tonight, you know, and then for the healthcare professionals, they, I think we, I think almost everyone has gotten invitations for the national pancreas conference. We um, advertise with the general practitioners for their e-learning modules. Yeah. So we really, we really try to support both populations as, as best mm -hmm. we can. 
if I was listening to this, there's lots of ways that people can get involved and support these days. And there's lots of things that are competing for our attention when it comes to worthy causes. Um, what would be your message to people that are listening that are looking at making the greatest impact they can if they were to donate time or resources to, to something like pancreatic cancer? I think, you know, we all have been touched by something. So, you know, for me, um, you know, my passion will always be until I take my last breath about pancreatic cancer. But I also think we have to be responsible in terms of where we donate. Um, you know, and, and looking at where the market is saturated and maybe where there's less funding. So if you look at, and of course, I'm going to be the salesperson for pancreatic cancer, but if you look at pancreatic cancer, we've had minimal changes since 1998. We received less than 2% of funding. However, pancreatic cancer is taking more lives than breast cancer. So it's a th third leading cause of all cancer deaths. By 2030, it's projected to be the second leading cause of all cancer deaths. So I think if people are looking at a, a place that their money can have a big impact, looking at pancreatic cancer, um, it makes sense because it's a cancer that's not making advancements. The research funding is low, even with our contributions or other organizations' contributions, it still remains relatively low, but the interest is getting higher. And uh, if we don't, you know, if we don't change the outcome right now, if we don't start really focusing on, on more research projects, um, you know, advancing awareness, putting more resources into healthcare professionals' hands, this is not gonna change. So all the other cancers are improving and we're getting screening and we're getting more um, treatment options. Right now, we have two to choose from besides the Whipple, besides surgery. You know, we need more. That's, it's, not, it's not equitable um, for pancreatic cancer patients right now. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, you know there's a lot, of, of, a lot of great research projects that can be funded. But there's also a lot of great patient um, support programs that need funding and also healthcare, you know, healthcare education programs as well. So, so you obviously have a really deep personal connection. I can completely relate to that. I always like asking people that are making such a profound difference, you know, how does it help you and how do you feel being able to lead the charge when it comes to uh, changing, you know, hopefully the fate of people that have pancreatic cancer through your work? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. I don't feel, I'll probably, in all honesty, I'll probably never think that I did enough. Being on this journey for 16 years from when dad was diagnosed to even, you know, Saturday night when we had our kicking pancreas event in Nova Scotia, you know, the people that I feel like are really leading the charge were the, are the patients. We had, you know, a patient there who was in New Brunswick and then in Nova Scotia who had gone through surgeries and ringing the bell, like after 81 chemotherapy treatments, you know, and radiation, like that, those are the people like sharing their stories, being brave enough to talk about their stories so they can help somebody else not feel so isolated or alone. So I feel like all of these, you know, the volunteers and the patients and the caregivers that are sharing their stories, using our programs, you know, telling us what we need more of, the healthcare professionals who really have given up 
their lives. They've dedicated their lives to help others. Like, I feel like they're leading the charge. So, you know, I hope, you know, that our programs support the individuals that they're made for and, um, and that we'll continue to do our work. We will continue to do our work, but I, I'm, those are the ones that inspire me. The healthcare professionals, patients, caregivers, our staff, and our volunteers are amazing. Well, I'll tell you, uh, organizing this episode and reaching out to you and seeing you bring your network of people together with personal stories and expertise in the medical world to help educate the people that are listening to the show is a really powerful contribution. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your very personal story and uh, relating, you know, how uh, how challenging this condition is to everybody that's listening out there today. So thank you so much for for, for joining me today. Well, thanks for taking the time and thanks for, you know, focusing on this topic during Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month and, and World Pancreatic Cancer Day and, you know, increasing the awareness uh, throughout candidates. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you to my guests for joining me today. As many of you know, I lost my father to pancreatic cancer a decade ago. It was hard to accept that there was very little that could be done and his chances of survival were so low. Well, a decade later, those rates haven't changed much. With pancreatic cancer continuing to climb the ranks as one of the most deadly cancers in the country, we're seeing many other cancers that are becoming more treatable. So I always try to shed light on this topic in case someone's able to detect it early. For those listening looking to support a worthy cause, I encourage you to think about supporting this much needed research for pancreatic cancer. Thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.